to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Nedry. Grown-ups are a strange breed. Their brains weigh close to three pounds, and that's not three pounds of cheery delight. <laughs> this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seekwarts, the best online and unusual source for comic books news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seekwart is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. So, shall we go on to the news? Let's. I would like to start with comic book creators being dumb. You know, things got quiet on that front for a while, and I was willing to assume that maybe people at Marvel and DC were finally getting some media training, but oh no. So, Frank Cho, the man who has championed free speech and creators' rights in the face of fan outrage, is crying censorship. Apparently, Greg Rucka wasn't happy with Cho's variant covers for Wonder Woman, particularly one in which Wonder Woman is doing the usual Cho, like, bent over pose with her underwear line showing. Mm, yeah. He wasn't happy with that. Now, Greg Rucka, you may remember, is back at DC after not exactly having the best working relationship with them. So when he asked that Cho be removed, DC obliged. Now, from what I understand, he asked for the cover to be cropped. And Cho yeah. refused, saying, well, it's either the cover stays or I go. And they say, well, then you go. Because we bent over backwards to bringing Greg Rocca to do Wonder Woman. And you're just a variant cover artist. Now, here's why Frank Cho is so stupid, Tom. He is so stupid. This guy is whining about how he's being censored. This is the same person, I'll remind you who made so much noise over the Milo Manara story, talking about how creators should be free to do what they want and not kowtow to pressure, follow their artistic vision. Cho does not fit Rucka's artistic vision here. You know, and he even said it himself. He said, uh, this was a quote of Cho's to Bleeding Cool, naturally. Everyone, in capital letters, everyone, loves my Wonder Woman covers and wants me to stay. Greg Rucka is the only one who has any problem with covers. Greg Rucka has been trying to alter and censor my artwork since day one. Greg Rucka gets to decide what kind of covers his work gets, you dumbass. Like, I can't even wrap my brain around the hypocrisy here. The fact that Cho was completely unwilling to compromise his vision without even taking into account that, like, maybe Greg Rucka doesn't want his female protagonists to have their underwear sticking out. That's kind of a consistent thing with Rucka. Well, it's not a consistent thing with Wonder Woman. Well, that too. In a, right. in a design sense, I mean, this is a character that was born out of not so much sexualization, but, you know, sexual identity that was one of the main themes with Wonder Woman. I don't think I don't really have a problem with Cho on this one. I have a problem with whoever in the editorial that decided, you know who's going to work on our Greg Rocca Wonder Woman? Frank Cho as a cover artist. That was just, this is Frank Cho. This is not a surprise. You but know listen, what you're going to get. But that, see, that argument has been brought out to defend Cho on this point, And I have to disagree because here's the thing. Even assuming, yes, obviously it's an editorial mismatch to say that a cheesecake artist like Frank Cho should be working with someone like Greg Rucka, who has in recent years made it a point not to do that kind of woman protagonist, right? That's his thing. Frank Cho, as someone who has made so much hullabaloo about this idea of respecting creators, clearly doesn't respect Rucka. 
it would have been on Cho to change his artwork per the writer's request anyway. If he were literally any other artist, the request would have been the same. So this is a situation where the only creator rights that Frank Cho actually cares about are his own. To which I just say, get gone. Now, to be fair, I, I disagree with the notion that because comics is a work of calibration, right? You, you need the artist and the writer, but Cho is not even the artist on the book. Nicol- Nicola Scott never said anything, right? As far as I know, Nicola Scott said nothing, but then Nicola Scott had nothing to do with this. Like, she has been doing the internal artwork for the books, regardless of what Frank Cho has been adding or removing. It has nothing to do with the actual content of the work. This is clearly a situation. Now, Rucka didn't make any statement either, but based on the fact that he took the step of asking DC to get Cho off the book, clearly he wasn't happy with what was going on. So I don't understand why Cho feels he has a case here to present himself as a martyr or a victim. This was not a case of censorship. This was a case of, of a writer saying, your covers do not suit my book. Are you willing to change them? No, get out. And I'm just, I'm sick of the, the you know, it, it's so hypocritical on Cho's part, and he doesn't even see it, right? To make the argument that his rights as a creator should take precedent over the person who is actually writing the book. If Cho were the artist, maybe he'd have like grounds to make that argument. He's a variant cover artist. Who are we kidding here? Well, yeah. There's some sort of a general position from which I can see Cho's argument. But if you accept that argument of, well, I'm being censored, I should be allowed to do what I want, where's the limit? What Cho can do on the cover? Can he... Can he show full naked Wonder Woman? Can he show her during intercourse? Because if you accept his position of anything that you change is censorship, well, he, he could do anything. And obviously, he can't. This is a, what, a PG-13 rated title? Even to begin with, you're working for DC. Like, you don't own these characters anyway, so... Yeah, that's, that's one of the problems with American <laughs> superheroes, which it's that weird line, are they entertainment, are they art, they're entertainment that sometimes art, they're art that's usually entertainment, you know. Rocka isn't just gonna come out and say, well, DC can do what they want because it's just stupid entertainment and it's nothing artistic. Nobody's gonna say that about their work, right? As far as I know, I mean, I'm sure that some creators have made, you know, comments to the well, extent yeah, yeah, of, well, the golden age, the my... silver age. No, people. even now, you know, there are writers who take the position of saying, like, look, this is my run. What's going to happen afterwards? I don't know. I don't care. It's not my business. I just do, like, I'm here to work. Nobody's under, like, the thing is that no one's under any illusions as to what working for DC and Marvel actually means now, right? I mean, we all know all of their business anyway, especially today. So it just, it feels like Frank Cho is channeling Eric Cartman here, rather than, I do what I want. But unfortunately, that perspective doesn't work when you're up against someone DC clearly values more than you. So sucks to be Frank Cho, I guess. Like, I don't know. Look at what he's going to bat for, you know? This is the thing that really sort of disgusts me about this whole situation. Like, the fact that he is making a crusade out of the fact that Rucka, and by extension DC, won't let him show Underwoman's panty line. Like, that's what this is, right? That's what the, the hill that he wants to die on. Do you not find that completely ridiculous? Well, it's a hill. 
I mean, it says more about him than it does about the content, I think. Like, for whom Mickey... the bell tolls, uh, for Frank Jones. Love of panties, I guess. Uh, well, he got what was coming to him. Now, to counterbalance that, we actually have a really nice story. Sort a, of. A sweet story. Starring, a sort of sweet story. Starring the unsweetest man of them all, <laughs> Ellen Moore. Now, we joke sometimes about Ellen Moore whenever he comes up with some new statement or whatever. And it's sort of easy because the men are really out there in terms of public perception and behavior and words sometimes. But overall, Ellen Moore is a good man. Like, you remember last year, the news about the refugee family that Ellen Moore paid, like, what was it, 10,000 pounds for them to be reunited? So uh, now, proving again that his heart is as big as his beard, on the back cover of his new book, Jerusalem, Ellen Moore is going to publish a single-line review from a nine-year-old fan. Right below Michael Moorcock. It's like, Times Literary Supplements, genius, Michael Moorcock, a great transformative work, a nine-year-old kid saying, Ellen Moore, best author in human history, in your face, Shakespeare, Joyce, and Cervantes. Now, see, that's really sweet on the one hand. <laughs> it's a little terrifying that nine-year-olds are reading Ellen Moore. Well, yeah. I don't know if that's... Uh, right. If you go, if you go to the article in the Guardian, you can see like the the letter writing that he and Moore had, and it's like, oh, this nine year old has read V for Vendetta and Watchmen and loved them. So either he has the best parents in the world or the worst. <laughs> either he's you know intellectually encouraged to explore deep themes, or his parents are like, oh, it's a comic, you can read it, yeah. and then. Thank God Lost Girls wasn't in there. Oh, God. Oh, God. Ooh, that would have been something. Or, or Neonomicon. Yeah, that would have sparked a completely different conversation, you know, like, I think. Dear Ellen Moore, I am now scarred for life. <laughs> Hell, really, I'm scarred for life. I'll write that letter. Yeah, uh, Neonomicon did a job on me, that's for sure. I, I liked it, but okay. There is one sour spot in the whole story, mm -hmm. which is that in the reply letter that he wrote to this fan... He, of course, had to talk about DC and Marvel and how he doesn't own any of this work. And this is really the crux of the dilemma that I have with Alan Moore at this point in his career. Because, like you said, essentially, he's a nice guy. This is not someone with a toxic personality where it's fun to actually bash him. I do feel bad for him. And I do sympathize with him. And I do recognize that he was really, really wronged by these companies. DC in particular. But at the same time... God, do you always have to bring it up in every single conversation? Does it always, like, he perpetuates the, look at how much I was wrong, and, and you know, I don't own any of this, and it's all crap, and it's like, okay, Sean, yes, take we know note, this. Take note, nobody told him about DC Rebirth yet. I don't think that that would be wise. I think that we should let Sleeping Snakes lie. And maybe not tell him, because clearly he doesn't care anyway. Like, what would he do? Get angrier? Put a curse on Burbank? I don't know. Like, all of a sudden, all the water in Burbank is going to turn to blood, and it's going to be a whole thing. Nobody needs to tell him. Just leave it alone. But I am saying, like, this is someone who, for all that I recognize just how screwed he is by the system and by this industry... The fact that he keeps going back to it, it's like, it's been 30 years. Come on. We're kind of tired of hearing about it, you know? I mean, all of this is already known, and there isn't really anything that anybody can do Well, about we it. already had a back and forth on that, and my position is, and I think always will be, 
the screwing that they did for Alan Moore is so large and so terrible that yeah, but I, it keeps his right to complain. It's morally reprehensible. Morally reprehensible, absolutely. And, and I don't think that there are many people who disagree with that. Like, we all know Alan Moore's story by this point. In fact, it's kind of sad to say, but at this point, the Alan Moore story is more dominant than any story he's written in the last 10 years. Nobody is really, I mean, listen, when you talk about Alan Moore in the news cycle, the first thing that pops into anyone's head is like, yeah, they're screwing with him again with, uh, with Watchmen. They're, they're, they're poking the bear. What has he actually written in that time? That well, made people a read? one million word novel, apparently, right? That no There's... one has read besides Michael Moorcock, apparently. So well, I because it hasn't come out yet. It's a preview. Are you going to read it? Be honest. Uh, uh, with Jerusalem? Me. Jerusalem. Uh, I, f- I think I will. You're going to read a million, a million word novel. Uh, not a million, but yeah, it's very long. I've I've read longer, right? We've yeah. read like the trillion uh, sequels, fantasy series. If if we survived Game of Thrones and whatever, we can survive Jerusalem. Yeah, I guess. I'm just saying it's turning into a situation where that's what he's known for more than his work. And I think even more himself doesn't necessarily want that, right? And yet he goes out of his... Like a fan, a nine-year-old fan sends him a letter saying, I love your stuff. He replies, thank you, I'm very appreciative, I'm glad you like my stuff, but also remember that I don't own any of it. I'm like, what are you What are you doing? You remember when he was doing a guest appearance on The Simpsons? And it was him on a table with Dan Klaus and Art Spiegelman and uh, Milhouse coming in for a signature and bringing in a copy of uh, Watchmen Babies in V for Vacation. Oh, and Ellen Moore yeah. just, you know, sc- clouds darkening and these companies, they take and they take yeah, and they destroy. But... Like that. It's not a cartoon. This is Ellen Moore. And yeah, they take and they take. They and, do. And you know what? And if DC Rebirth hadn't come out in the last six months, I might have been annoyed. And I know he doesn't even know it, but since it came out, and once again... The bear has been poked. I'm with the bear. You can't keep poking the bear and then get all, you know, upset that the bear is angry and trying to bite your head off. Stop poking the bear. Well, no, that's true. Like, And again, I don't think that there's anyone that doesn't take more side in this only because we know all the facts. Oh, right? oh you'd be so... So many people on the internet going over and... Well, it's legally there, so that's fine. They just screwed him with the lawyers. That's fine. If Alan Moore wanted to like go on social media and blast DC, that would be completely within his rights. I'm not sure why he would go there in a response to a fan letter that was pretty like like we said, we started out by saying like this was a really sweet gesture, but he just had to take that extra step of like never forget how I was screwed. And like n- nobody forgot, Alan. We were all on your side on this, but nobody forgot And we also don't need to keep being reminded because there's not really anything we can do about it. And there's apparently not much that you can do about it. And we have been saying screw DC for years, regardless. So I don't know what it is you expect this nine-year-old to say. What is the response you were hoping to cultivate with that? I don't know. Doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, Next on the news, Image. Sure. What do you got? There's a new book coming soon from uh, Joe Casey and Nick uh, Dragada. It's going to be called All American Comics. With an X. With an X, yes. Comics, as you were, because it's... Well, it's Joe Casey. He already did Catalyst Comics for Dark Horse. Why not? Sure. And the star is going to be a Latin American superhero called 
America Vasquez. Previously seen in Young Avengers. No, 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 no. That was America Chavez. Oh. Totally. See, America Chavez has a hat. And America Vasquez doesn't have a hat. She doesn't have a hat. She, You're right. Now, that would have been a bit annoying unless you counter the fact that America Chavez was created by Joe Casey and Nick Dragata for their Vengeance miniseries. So he's swiping from himself intentionally and like poking his finger in Marvel's eyes saying, well, you can't touch this. This is obviously not your character. This is my character. Is this the new Destroyer Duck? That was my first thought, right? Howard the Duck, <laughs> Destroyer Duck. Mm. I was thinking about it in terms of what would have motivated this particular project. Being Joe Casey. Well, that too. But also, to the best of my knowledge, when America Chavez first debuted in Marvel, she wasn't that popular. It was Kieran Gillen bringing her into Young Avengers, I think, that really made her... A character, recognized. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like he did more with her. I know that she's supposedly in something from the Marvel reboot after Civil War II. I think she's in US Avengers, something like that. Because she sounds like a character Al Ewing would like writing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it does seem strange to me that she has not been more prominent. You would think that they would go in that direction seeing how she was well-received in Young Avengers, but there was a period of time where nobody did anything with her. And I have to imagine that was what motivated Casey and Dragata to pitch this to Image. Well, I, part of it, and part of it is that Casey likes the revamp. Casey likes every, you know, every year or so to take a classic superhero character or concept and just redo them. Like I said, with Catalyst Comics, uh, last year we had, what was it? Valhalla Mad, which was... Obviously, Marvel's Warrior Free, right? Just done in Casey style. This is something that Casey does. And. Has he ever done it to himself, though? Well, first time for everything. <laughs> Will you be checking it out? Yeah, sure. I like Joe Casey, Nick Dragona, fine artist. You know, it's image. That's Probably going to be like a $3, uh, 40 page number one, you know, because it's image. Yeah, I can check that out. So, speaking of projects that are interesting and that we are both looking forward to, Tartakovsky's Cage, capital C-A-G-E, is finally here. This is a four-part miniseries. I think we talked about it in a previous episode where Gandhi Tartakovsky, creator of Samurai Jack, Symbiotic Titans, and many other series, pitched a Cage miniseries to Marvel years ago. And 2006 it was, I believe. Yeah, and apparently it got lost in some kind of shuffle. His contract with Marvel expired. It, it came... fell down a boom tube. We yeah, don't know. just sort of disappeared. It came back into popular awareness when Samurai Jack was announced as returning for season five. And apparently Brevard and Alonzo were like, wait, we have a Tartakovsky pitch? Somebody get him on the phone. And now uh, it's finally here. I am breaking my Marvel boycott for this. I'll be completely honest. Like, I have not been picking up any of their titles. Not interested in Marvel Now 2.0 at all. But for Tartakovsky's Cage, I'll make the exception. Chip Zdarsky's Star-Lord? Not catching nope. your fancy? Really? Nope. Ooh. Nope. Nope. Because, well, we'll talk about that in a bit. But, mm. um, yeah, slim pickings, so to speak. Uh, it's interesting. It's, it's really, it's been long gestating. Hopefully we'll actually see it because 
it's been announced like two years ago that maybe it's coming back and then it disappeared again. Mm-hmm. And comic has a history of like saying something is there and then no, it's not there. Yes, but on the other hand, they are definitely timing this to coincide with the Luke Cage Netflix series. So if there was ever an incentive to really get it out the door, okay, even though... Yeah, but that's such a weird choice because Tarkovsky's cage is obviously going to be miles away from the oh, he said Netflix it. series. Yeah, he said that he's setting... It's a, it's a retro piece set in the 1970s. Yeah, he's yellow so blouse, tiara... Afro, all of that, sure. But, but at the same time, it's like people are aware that Luke Cage has an existence beyond the Netflix series anyway. So, you know, I think that they're timing it that way. I, I imagine the horrid faces on the eyes of Netflix viewers coming into a store and saying, oh, we really like this cage thing. Do you have like a cage book? And some over-enthusiastic store employee bringing them <laughs> this cage. Tartakovsky's cage, I think, would be awesome. And, and, well, it's awesome, but they look at it. This is obviously not cage. What, what's this, what is this hair? What is this, this shirt? I think that they'd recognize it would be different. But again, we're talking about Tartakovsky here. The man has a very distinct and very popular style. It's hard for me to believe that people would be like, ew, no, I don't want it. You know, I mean, anybody else, if they were launching like a Bendis Luke Cage book, which I'm almost certain that they are. <laughs> But well, if, yeah. if they were doing that, then it would be like, you pick it up and he sounds like an old Yiddish man. And then you're like, um, this isn't working. Isn't all Martin Locage really a Bendis Locage? The things no. he did with the Pulse and his Daredevil run and Jessica Jones? No, I think that he became more prominent under Ewing. I, I'm sorry. I love Ewing. I'll take, I'll take Ewing, I'll take Ewing over Bendis any day of the week and on the weekends and on, you know, the days after time stops. In terms of popularity, Bendis is more popular. No, hang on. We're not talking about popularity here. We're talking about which version of the character was more recognizable. Bendis did bring him back. Like, there was a period of time, late 90s, early 2000s, where Luke Cage was just nothing. Like, he wasn't around. Bendis did bring him back in Alias, in Daredevil, made him more prominent. Made him a star in these Avengers run? Sure. But I think that the drawback with Bendis was that he did, you know, for all his idiosyncrasies and his popularity, on the other hand, he does have a tendency to sort of flatten, blend, flatten and blend all these characters together. I think that Luke Cage's popularity spiked again when Ewing got a hold of him. Because he did that was a point where he became the leader of the Avengers, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. And that yeah. led directly into what he's been doing now with like a, you know, marrying Jessica Jones with the baby and then getting back together with Iron Fist. So I think Bendis made him prominent again, but Ewing made him more popular. What I like about Ewing's version is that he can balance between the, well, this is a ridiculous character in a superhero universe. Having crazy adventures with the more, well, this is a serious-minded story about a black man in modern America. Right. Because Bendis took it a bit too much over to the serious side, forgetting that this is a superhero story. Well, that's Bendis, isn't it? Mm. But anyway, Tartakovsky's Cage, I'm really looking forward to it. Something else I'm looking forward to is that uh, Brian Lee O'Malley has a new graphic novel trilogy coming out called Worst World. 
This is with Jason Fisher and Nathan Fairbairn. This is the team from Seconds, which mm. I very much enjoyed. Oh, I just, I've read Second like last week, finally. Isn't it good? It's great. I, I was on and off on Scott Pilgrim, but Seconds is legit classic. Scott Pilgrim, I think, just went on for too long. Mm. Like, the joke was done by book four. You could have just stopped there. But um, Seconds was phenomenal, I thought. And now he's doing a new trilogy. They have not mentioned if it's self-publishing. When it comes to books, Brian Lee O'Malley is a huge name and he can sort of dictate terms if he wants to. Yeah. Uh, if it ends up being like through a traditional publisher and not a comic book company, I mean, who cares? You're just, we're all going to read it anyway. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and any- it's a great team. Again, Jason Fisher did good work. Really bring to life uh, O'Malley's pencil and design, and Fairburn is, I think, second or third greatest colorist in the industry right now. Yeah, right below Dave Stewart, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of curious to see what he'd be like as a writer, which we'll be finding out soon by image. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, movie news. Sure. What do you got? Uh, Mouse Guard is apparently on fast track to becoming a CGI live action movie. Uh, Mouse Guard, in case you don't know, is an ongoing fantasy funny animal series about, well, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of mice serving in like medieval European society of mice protecting them from animals and traps and, you know, the wilds of the world. It's been right. going on for 10 years now from wow. Archaea Press. It's a great, great series. I haven't read all of it, but everything that I've read from it was beautiful it was lush it was well written it's one of those all ages series that actually appeals to both adults and kids oh delightful yeah so the movie adaptation is going to be from the director uh, matt reeves who did the planet of the apes remake Mm -hmm. uh rise of planet of the apes was it Oh, I, I lost count. The, the first one. Like, <laughs> the first of the remakes. The, the one with... Dawn uh, of the Planet of the Apes. The Sorry. one with the Gollum ape or the one with James Franco? I don't even know. The James Franco one. Oh, God, no. Oh. That was a good movie. I can't help you with that. Oh, no. That was a really good movie. And it's going to be uh, written by uh, Gary Whitta, who's now writing uh, Rogue One Star Wars story. Oh, okay. So that's that's high pedigree. It is. And they're talking about using the same technology they used for the recent uh, live-action CGI Jungle Book from Disney. Now, mm. have you seen that movie? I have seen parts of that movie, and I don't know if that's a good idea. Well, it's not a good movie, but the technology is there. Yes and no. The technology is there to create very realistic looking CGI-generated animals and humanize them in appropriate ways. The technology is not there to put these digital entities on the same screen as an actual person oh, no, and I... have it look realistic. No, no, no. For all the faults of the movie, and there are many, the kid interacts with the animals and nature perfectly. But he I don't does. think there are humans in Mouse Guard, at least not in the stories that I've read. It's just... Then why would you need it to be yeah. live-action? It's just to avoid calling it animation, I'd say. Or maybe they're going to put in some kid or something no, terrible like that. Oh God, I hope not. That would now, be maybe there are kids and you know, humans in the stories that I haven't read, because I haven't read all of it. But everything that I've read was just, you know, mice against world, as it were. 
Yeah, in which case I would assume that like you would just use the CGI. The problem yeah. with the Jungle Book as an example is like you're right, the, the kid wasn't the problem. It's just that when you have like the the Baloo on the left and the kid on the right, the kid's doing fine, but you sitting in the audience, you're like you can tell that it's not, you know, that it's green screening. You're aware of that, and I don't think that they've reached a point yet where we can not tell the difference. You know what I mean? So I'd say just like stick with the CGI, but we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. Uh, Justice League. Justice League. Action! 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 Because that's something that we were really lacking, weren't we? <laughs> uh, the trailer for the new Justice League cartoon, Justice League Action, from uh, Cartoon Network, just dropped out in the first uh, day of uh, San Diego Comic Con. We've been waiting for this cartoon for a good long while, and it's going to feature. Hmm? We have. We, the comic reading public. That's news to me as a member of the comic reading public, but go ahead. Uh, so the series is going to be uh, like 11-minute episodes featuring a cast of simplified and younger-leaning Justice League. We're going to have Green Arrow, Batman, Plastic Man, Superman, Wonder Woman, Firestorm as the key to peel character. Now, that's uh-huh. a sentence I've never heard that's said by anyone. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And Space Cabby. Who? Space Cabby from uh, a series of Legion of Superhero times, I think. Like he was in Adventure Comics in the Silver Age. The Legion's coming in. Great. No, not the Legion, just Space Cabby. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, now this is obviously from the trailer a very kidified version of the story, which is not something that I'd prefer, but. Again, I'm 30. I'm not the target audience. Well, even setting that aside, I mean, not every animated series that is purportedly designed for kids necessarily has to follow being simplified, you know? And because I saw the trailer and it's like, okay, look. Pow, pow, pow. They, They got Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill back. Both of whom continue to be absolute gifts to any DC project that they get involved in. This will come out right next to The Killing Joke, which is a whiplash. Sure. Absolutely. But the bigger problem is, like, just looking at it. So these are 11-minute episodes. And the whole thing is, like, heroes fighting villains. And it's like, look, we've been doing some variation of that in TV, in cinema for so long I'm not even saying, like, let's change the paradigm because it's, you know, let's be realistic here and look at who we're dealing with. But you're showing me this trailer to this show that looks exactly like every other show is dealing with exactly the same. I'm not even saying that it's bad that they have the same voice talent because, again, Conroy and Hamill are amazing. But can we not innovate a little just like something new how, I was how can you the, innovate it's the justice league but the first thing well first of all that's not entirely true because like you're uh you've heard of the webcomic jl8 oh yeah that's how you innovate i was what you know what came to mind i was watching it since like this is teen titans go again yep why are we doing teen I, titans I go i actually again? find more about spider-man unlimited which i hate i just well, that, <laughs> that too although i guess we can be fair and say that that happened at a point in time where Marvel's TV properties maybe weren't being managed correctly. But it's still ongoing. By the way, uh, Spider-Man Unlimited... 
Are you talking about Manifest- um, Ultimate Spider-Man? Ultimate, sorry. Because Spider-Man Unlimited. Unlimited was in the 90s. And I hate really both was. of them. It's okay. <laughs> the only Spider-Man cartoon I actually like without any ironic distancing or nostalgia goggles is Spectacular Spider-Man. Uh, that would be Greg Wiseman's influence, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there you go. DC in particular has every all of these animated films, and most of them are garbage, but they keep putting them out like clockwork, and... It would be nice if just once one of these was on the level of something like Gods and Monsters, where at least you saw that and you're like, you know what? That's something I haven't seen before. Yep. This is just like, okay, so you're doing Titans Go again. What do you want from me? Like, applause? Okay, like, Titans Go was Titans Go, and that was a while back, and it had its fan base. I'm not even saying that it wasn't popular, but it's just like, God, Justice League action, because action was the one thing that was missing from the Justice League. I'm still shocked they haven't gone with a full series for the series of Lauren Faust shorts they had, like Super Best Friend Forever, the Bad Girl, Wonder Girl, Supergirl team up. There was something about that. I, I, I yeah. know what you're talking about, but I've never seen it. It was like a series of like four or five shorts they did for the DC Nation short oh, block. Oh, right, right, and right. These were charming and funny and wonderful. And why did. From the creator of My Little Pony, Friendship is Magic. The most successful cartoon show of the last four years or so. Why didn't you go with that? Well, you just answered your own question, didn't you? It was light and charming and fun and from a <laughs> successful creator. That's why we're at DC. We don't do Can't fun. Have that. Grr. Previews? Uh, previews. Okay. So as we said, because we're not talking about SDCC, this actually factors into our review of the October previews. Marvel has decided to withhold their solicitations until after San Diego Comic-Con. To be brutally honest, I don't think either of us care either way. So, DC? Okay, go ahead. Uh, Well, Young Animal is stepping it up. We've got Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye, number one. This is written by Gerard Way and John Rivera. Art by Michael Avon Newming. Now, I need you to clarify something for me, Tom, because I'm reading the solicitation text talking about, like, the continuing adventures of Cave Carson and everything he's accomplished. Is this a follow-up to something? Uh, no, but Cave Carson was a DC character. I have, I, it's one of those Silver Age, I think, Bob Haney things. I don't know. The previews was talking about, like, everything that he's accomplished and now his adventure continues. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Are we expected to have previous context? Going no, into I, I this? think I think it's part of the gag. It's like it's a Buckaroo Bonsai type type shindig, I'd say. Ah, okay. That's what I read at least from the preview. It's like, oh, see these amazing adventures of this guy. Most of you've never heard of because you're not fifty year old Bob Haney fans, <laughs> like me. I may look thirty, but I am a fifty year old Bob. You Haney have the heart fan of a fifty year old. Yes, I ate it. It was delicious. <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, as with most of the Young Animal books, I am going to give it a chance just because I'm curious. I really am. This sounds interesting. I'm not sure it's sustainable for any extended period of time, but, you know, Uh, Speaking of Young Animal, Shade the Changing Girl. Yes. By uh, Marley Zircone and... Cecil Castellucci. I don't have a problem with the change from a changing man to the changing girl so much as Shade the Changing Man is one of those landmark vertical series that took an existing property and put a new spin on it. Mm-hmm. And everybody who wrote the character after is sort of like putting a sign saying, I am not Pillar Milligan. 
which is the exact same thing that you have whenever someone whose name is not Alan Moore is trying to do Swamp Thing or someone who's not Grant Morrison trying to do Animal Man. Mm, They've rewrote the characters so successfully that it's basically theirs in the public opinion. Which is probably why they're relaunching with a different character in the first place. Yeah, but it's still, you know, we know what they're talking about, right? It's called Um, Shade the Changing Girl. Yeah, I think... See, I'm of two minds on this. Because on the one hand, you're right that these kind of stunts... Like, you know, making it a different character isn't going to erase everyone's association with Milligan, right? Like, you're constantly inviting that comparison. It's the same thing with Holly Black and Lucifer, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when you are trying to recreate in some way, or you're invoking a past run that has, for all intents and purposes, been associated with a single creative voice for a very long period of time, and is still associated even afterwards... Like you said, whenever Shade turns up afterwards, people are always like, this is not Milligan's Shade. I don't know what's going on here. The flip side of that, though... Unless they're reading Milligan's Shade, in which case it's, oh, it's Milligan's Shade. I don't know what's going on here. Well, yeah. (laughs) You sort of get bewildered either way. The flip side of that, though, I think, is that Castellucci is a pretty good writer. I don't think I've read anything. Did you read The the Plain Janes? Oh, that's from uh, the... Minx. Minx. Mink. I, I fought Jinx. And like, oh, <laughs> it was uh, Jinx, unfortunately. Uh, Jinx was okay. Somebody's going to have to do like a full takedown of the Minx line one day because it was full of this bursting talent. You know, Jillian yeah. Tamaki was there at the beginning of her career and nothing came out of it. You'd have to so remind like, people what Minx was before you actually started asking them to talk about it. But, you know... Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it was a huge failure on DC's part to capitalize on all this talent. Castellucci has been making a name for herself as a novelist. Uh, She's been working on some of the Disney-approved canonical novels for Star Wars now, like The Force Awakened material, Mm. which I haven't read yet, but, you know, she has a very good knack of creating interesting and compelling characters. I think the fact that she is going with Shade to Changing Girl and not trying to bring back Milligan's protagonists might work in her favor here. Because, like, with Holly Black, the problem is she's using Lucifer, right? She is using Carrie's Lucifer. Nobody's under any illusions there. At least here, it's like, okay, you have these characters. Yes, there was a shade, the changing man. Milligan wrote him. It was very weird. If you want to, go read it. But this is You can't else. because DC doesn't keep it in print. The trades aren't in print? Not for a long, long... I've, the first two trades were in print, and that's it. Well, like, out of 60 issues, they reprinted 10. Uh, our friend of the podcast, Guy Pilevsky, has been trying to collect the Starman omnibuses and has not been having a good time of it. <laughs> so, yeah, DC is not doing a great job with their... They're better than Marvel. That's like their slogan. DC, we're better than Marvel. When it comes to trade collections. Yeah. Yeah, I can... I also, can we're cheaper that. than Marvel. Still not... I mean, still kind of problematic, though. Like... For, for all that DC tends to do better in this, I think part of it is just like they have this mentality of even the good stuff that happened in the 90s, they're just not interested in going back there and not interested in keeping it in print. Like Morrison's Doom Patrol, I don't think, is... Uh... No, no, Morrison's Doom Patrol is in print. They actually just brought it back in like three giant collections instead mm-hmm. of the usual six smaller ones. Well, you could probably find... I think that DC does sell Shade the Changing Man like digitally. Yeah, that would you know, be I'm, I'm a print fan. I know, but I'm saying, like, if you have no other avenue of accessing this material, 
Milligan's Shade the Changing Man is still worth reading, even if the trades aren't there. Like, if you have to go digital for that, I would say go digital just for that particular experience. Now, other than Young Animal, DC has a bunch of interesting or weird, like, series and miniseries stuff that... What am I meant to do with Deadman Dark Mentions of Forbidden Love by Vaughn and Len Medina? You know, I don't Trapped know. Trapped inside an old gothic mansion, Deadman must battle forces of darkness alongside Bernice, a young woman with a complicated love life who is gifted or cursed with the ability to communicate with the dead. So, necrophilia then. It's by Sarah Vaughn who wrote Alex and Ada with one of the Luna Brothers. I don't know, remember which. Probably Jonathan, but yeah. This sounds like it should be a young animal thing, but no, <laughs> it's apparently DC. I'll tell you what was interesting to me about that. First of all, it's a completely off-the-wall concept, but on the other hand, who's using Dead Man? You might as well. But the thing is, this is a three-issue mini. Mm-hmm. So... They're basically sidestepping the usual anxiety when it comes to DC as to what's the point of getting involved in this book. It'll be gone in six months anyway. Yeah, if this one announce, will be gone in three months. Yeah, but it, it has been designed that way. But it yeah. is being published and it is being announced as a three-issue miniseries. That I'm okay with. You know, that I'm saying, like, I would be willing to go and check that out. On the principle that I know that I'll get to the end of the story and DC is not going to pull the rod from under me the way they usually do. Uh, likewise, Midnighter and the Apollo. Which would Steve be the other thing. Mm-hmm. Steve Orlando and Fernando Blanco finishing up uh, the loose tides from, well, Orlando and his Midnighter. Yeah. And again, like it, it was interesting to me the way that they're doing this because the solicitation text makes it very clear Orlando probably did not write this, but whoever did write this previous text is very firmly in Orlando's corner because the whole thing is basically like, well, here's six more issues of Midnighter. You liked it? Have some more. There's no uh, attempt here to disguise the fact that this is an extension of a popular run that was canceled despite popularity. Yeah. So here's another miniseries that just attaches to the end of the last one and it's like an expansion. Obviously, I'm there, right? This isn't something that you need to sell me on. But it is interesting that these miniseries now are starting to come out. And, like, in the case of Orlando specifically, it's like, it's the same creative team. And we're going to do this now. And we're going to continue this. And they're bringing Apollo back in, which was, like, the major sticking point of the original storyline. So, how can you complain, right? Like Anything else from DC? One other thing that I thought was... Curious. Mm-hmm. He-Man, Thundercats, number one. This is <sighs> they, own, they own these properties, <laughs> I guess. This is how, but but I, I need to pick your brain on this, Tom, because I am at a loss here. It's written by Rob David and Lloyd Goldfein. Art by Freddie E. Williams II. Explain to me how this has never happened before. I assume it did. I cannot... Surely, I mean, surely no, it did. No, I, I remember the 80s for the most... If that had happened during the 80s, my head might have exploded. I would no, not, not in the 80s. I assume there was at least one comic book where they met, surely. Not that I recall, no. It's it's like the secondary Transformers G.A. Joe crossover, right? But no, because Thundercats, the comics, were coming out from Wildstorm, I think, at a time when they were at Image. 
You yeah, rem- you remember and these those were re- the worst comics ever. They were made. terrible. No, no, they were terrible. Let's not even mince words. Wiley Kid and Wiley Cat were giving naked baths to Mumra. I don't even want to talk about it. But- it's dark. Oh, it's green. Oh god, it's greedy. Oh god, it's it Thundercats. Nobody asked to draw. Like I want to know who the sicko was who said, "Let's give Wiley Cat." Or kid, I keep forgetting which one of them was a girl. Double D's. No, 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 no. Unacceptable. But I cannot remember this crossover. And when you think about it, it makes so much sense. Because they were both these really very, very 80s sort of fantasy combined with not exactly steampunk, but like had science fiction. I know, it's like it's Star Wars-esque science fantasy. In the other direction, though. Because Star Wars is like predominantly science fiction with the spaceships and the space travel and the lasers and all this and with a little bit of fantasy in like the Jedi and then with He-Man and Thundercats it's the other way around right it's a fantasy setting where all of a sudden you get like tanks mm-hmm. so very and interesting then by issue 5 the Silverhawks sweeping and kill oh everybody from God, space if only if only don't tease me that way that is wrong it has not been my custom to read the He-Man and like 80s cartoon nostalgia stuff that DC's been doing just because we've established that I have trust issues with DC. I'm tempted by this crossover. It Mm. makes so much sense and to the best of my memory has not been tried before. So let's give it a shot. Okay. Uh, Image? What have you got? Now, Image, I'll, I'll preface this by saying... They do have a bunch of new number ones. Nothing particularly caught my eye, and everything else is continuations of stuff that I'm already reading. So, well, the big one is, of course, Reborn number one, written by Mark Miller and drawn by Greg Capullo. And it's a smash hit sci fi action, blah, blah. Now, hopefully, it will be this it will be Mark Miller just writing, Hey, Greg, blow some stuff on the page. Which Greg can do. Yeah. If, if he can do what he did in the ultimate or the authority, which just get back, get out of it. Just let the artist and say what you will about Mark Miller. He always has this pick of the best artist in the biz. Yeah. Probably for the same reason, right? It's like, why would you want to work on a Mark Miller book? Because at some point he's going to give you a script that says like page one, go crazy. Dinosaurs versus monsters, sure. aliens, Godzilla's, whatever. Sure. Planets cracking in half. And yeah, all of that, right? So at yeah, some point, so it'll happen. it's it's one of those where do you go where you die? Not heaven, not, not hell. Some alternate limbo dimension, and obviously stuff will blow up. Yay! I'm not super excited for it, but I am kind of curious, just on the basis of I'm curious if he's just gonna live well enough alone. If Mark Miller can just step back, has he and ever? not do? In 1999, I think. <laughs> When I was a child, when I was a baby. <laughs> the legends tell us of a time when Mark Miller stood against his They Actually, DC recently reprinted uh, Superman Adventures, the 1990s cartoon. Everybody comics, always goes was, to that as a yeah. defense of Mark Miller. And it's like, yeah. what have you done for me lately? Well, and his Flash comics were right. All right. Weren't they co-written with Graham Morrison? Yeah, yeah. We don't know how much. Yes, who was do. who, right? We do. You can tell nobody got raped, so, you know. Yeah, but but the Flash did met Mark Miller. (laughs) 
as like his writer asking him for advice about how to write the Flash comics. Oh God! So what else? Uh, image? Anything else? Cannibal, Brian Bucoletto and Jennifer Young writing with uh, Matthias Brega drawing. Uh, it's about the denizens of a small Everglades town desperately trying to hold onto their everyday lives at the dawn of a cannibal pandemic. So it's zombies, just without saying zombies. I will be honest and say that I wasn't impressed with Bucoletto's last book, the one with the uh, the crime cult thing. You remember that? Son of the uh, Devil? Oh, oh, right. Not, not particularly. I mean, it was serviceable, I guess, but it didn't do anything for me. So I don't think that I'll be checking that one out. Yeah, Max Landis has something called Green Valley and Inisha Mini. Two uh, serials from Ireland are getting collected. Ancestor Ooh. by uh, Matt Sheen and Malachi Ward. Okay. That's 120 pages, 15 bucks. I don't, I don't remember if, if it finished in the actual. It hasn't book. finished yet. Cause maybe, maybe it. the last act is coming out in this week's island? No. No, I've, really? I've seen this week's island. I have not read Ancestor precisely because it hasn't finished yet. I think it finishes in next month's issue. Oh, okay. Makes I think sense. so. And Habitat by Simon Roy. He's writing and drawing. Habitat is $10 for 96 pages, which is a fine deal. I kind of think it went a bit off the rail towards the end, but I really want to sit up and reread the whole thing. In one go. This was the one with like the natives in the spaceship. Yeah, in the spaceship that is a world by itself. Yeah, that one like lost me almost yeah, but, immediately. Because uh, I, I had I no idea what, it was, what was going on. Yeah, I, I'm going to sit and reread the whole thing and see if it holds better in like one collected edition. Something like 3D printers all of a sudden can print weapons. and I, I really like Simon Roy in general, but that one... <laughs> well, the art I, was great. Mm, I thought oh, the yeah. art was fantastic. Uh, Fat Bubble Anthology Collection, 10 Years of Comics TPB. Huh. Uh, 136 pages of the Fat Bubble shorts from the last 10 years. This brings you the talents of people like Charlie Adlard, Gabriel Batista, Gabriel Ba, Kate Beaton, Jordi Belair, Ivan Brandon, Jeffrey Brown, Mark Buckingham, Adam Cal- Caldwell, Mike Carey, Emily Carroll, Cliff Chiang, Becky Cloonan, Bo Cook, Ming Do. If they're good, they're on that list. <laughs> Now, it's yeah. $10. The big question is this. Have you ever seen a Fadbubble anthology? I read one of them. Yeah, but they're printed on, like, you know, newspapers. No, I right? read them digitally. Oh, because when I, I, I buy them physically, and they're all printed on giant newspaper-sized ah, editions, okay. so you can't shrink it. The size of the page is essential, so I have no idea how they're going to do that. Oversized Divide trade. it up. Hmm? Oversized trade, maybe? It's gonna be. It's gonna have to be huge, and it's only ten dollars, so that doesn't seem likely. Maybe they will shrink it down. Okay. Anything else from Image? Uh, no, just like you know, the continuations, new storylines of stuff uh, that I was already reading. Oh, um, uh, Alex and Ada, since we've mentioned the yeah, Warner Brothers, is completed. Did not end well. I'll be honest. Oh, I, I haven't read it. No. Um, it, it started out in a very interesting place and sort of did not stick the landing in any way, shape, or form. There was one bit that got me curious uh i'm a lapsed reader of shutter i read the first two arcs and then sort of like drifted away i I basically like it didn't stick with me but i have been meaning to come back and check it out but the solicitation text for the november issue of shutter was interesting 23 yeah it says those of you who've been following in trades basically uh, the last trade of Shutter will not be coming out for a very long time. So if you want to know what happens, read the single issues. 
And I have a problem with this, Tom. I don't. Because A, when, when image says a long time, it means instead of, well, it's going to come out on the same month where the, when the mm, arc ends, it's going to come out like four months time. I don't know it's, if that's true. Most uh, publishers are not that fast. Uh, boom. It's like frustrating because I read Giant Days in Trades. Trade Free has just been solicited. And Trade Free contains issues that came out four months ago. It's especially problematic with Boom because their arcs tend to be four issues. So you're reading and, four issues in spans of like... And and I've once sat and listened to an interview with one of Image's publisher and they explained, well, we want to help the stores to resell their back issues. Which, when they explain that, well, yeah, it's fine. You know, it's their business partners and they want to work with them. They don't just want to... Once the month is ended, we have the collection out and everything that you have in the back being is now useless. The intention I understand. The problem that I'm having here is that to the best of my memory, Image has never explicitly put that in a directive to its readers as a warning of like, if you are a trade waiter, you're going to have to wait basically, for an unspecified amount of time. Like, they actually say that in the previous text. I find, yep. that, I find that unusual. You know, because unusual, if this were a policy... I, I, I don't have a problem with that. And I'm a trade reader mostly, but I'm fine with the art, with the creators, like, rewarding the readers of the single issues. How is that a reward? The single, how is that a reward? The single issues are coming out on time. It's not that they're getting more content or that they're getting different content. They're In just... this industry, it is an award. <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is coming out on time. Issue two of Four Kids Walking to a Bank coming someday to a store. Next I'm pretty year. sure that's out, actually. Oh, I haven't got it yet. Well, and I really like number one. It is out though. Oh. Um, anything else from Image? Nope. Okay, let's Do- move on Dark to Horse? Dark Horse. Chimichanga, Sorrows of the World, Worst Face, number one of four. That's a second uh, miniseries from Eric Powell, oh. uh, writing and drawn by Stephanie Buscema. It's a continuation of his own uh, child-friendly series of adventures about a young bearded girl and her pet monster. Now, when you say child-friendly... Child-friendly, totally child-friendly, PG-13 and all. From Eric Powell. Yep, he can't do that, you know, it's legal. Legal, yes. The guy who gave us <laughs> Satan Sodomy's Babies 1 and 2 can do child-friendly. But I guess my question is, can he? Oh, yeah, he can. The, the big problem that I have with it is that he was the writer and artist on the first miniseries, and buying an Eric Powell story that he doesn't draw is always a bit meh for me. Because this is drawn by Stephanie Buscema. I don't know who Any she relation is. to I, Sal? Have no, I literally have no idea, but Eric Powell is one of my favorite artists. And whenever he writes something and doesn't draw it, I'm always like a bit... That's like 60% of the reason I buy your stuff is because I love your art. His recent self-published uh, series, Hillabilly, was just beautifully amazing work. Hmm. Like super expressive, almost Mignola has content backgrounds and stuff like that. Okay. Just amazing. And then he's just writing stuff, and I'm, uh, I'm I'm just gonna wait for you to pick up the pencil again. That's fair. I've only got one item from Dark Horse, but it's an interesting one. Spell on Wheels. This is by Kate Leth and Megan Levins. It's a five issue miniseries, and you know I always have time for Kate Leth. It's about uh, three witches going on a road trip to get back their stolen magical items. Sounds fun. Hmm. 
Uh, let's see. They have Conan Omnibus Volume 1. This is a, the first out of, I'd say, two or three collections of the Kurt Busiek, Kerry Nord Conan run uh-huh. from the late 90s, early 2000s. And if you haven't read them, it's Conan. And I think it's as good as Conan Comics ever gotten. Uh, anything else, Sean? Nothing from Dark Horse. Who's next? Uh, IDW? Sure. What have you got? Just The Electric Sublime, a miniseries by W. Maxwell Prince and Martin Morazzo. Art is anything you can get away with. Destroy it all. Welcome to The Electric Sublime, where art history, madness and expression meet in a Pollock splatter of thrilling crime adventure. Goodness. I like it. Okay. <laughs> just on um, the strength of that audacious art is everything and the crimes of it's a, again it's a very like 1980s 2018 meets vertigo yeah we're gonna shock you this sounds like a lecture by someone who would call himself the bourgeoisie <laughs> but um okay uh you know curious enough to take a look at it anything else from them nope not for me boom big trouble okay. in little china and escape from new york this is <sighs> written by Greg Pack and Daniel Bayless. It's a six-issue now. This is meant. Series. This is meant for me, but I'm still not sure about <laughs> it. And I know why you're not sure about it. Well, because the first, the two series of uh, Big Trouble in Little China: Escape from New York weren't that good. No, they weren't. They weren't terrible. They were just. Oh, Eric Paul wrote the first like six issues of Big Trouble in Little China. They just weren't that good. There's a central problem here. That is also translating into Big Trouble in Little China, the series. The premise of this crossover is that Jack Burton gets sent to the future because he looks like Snake Plissken, so, you know. The future year of 1997. Yeah, it's the meeting of the mullets, basically. Okay, here's the problem, though. If you are at all a fan of Big Trouble in Little China to begin with, you know that Jack Burton isn't the hero of that story. Yeah. And so, to present a case where it's Jack Burton's story seems like a bit of a miscalculation. Yeah, he's, he's not the hero, but he's the most popular character. It's it's almost like Rorschach in Watchmen, where it's like, well, yeah, we're not even meant to be the heroes, but he gets all the best lines, right? Yes, but unfortunately, when you are taking that character into a crossover... You miss the point of like, the character. Yeah, because... He's not a protagonist. Like His whole character in the film is designed to make you think that he's the protagonist, only to have him fail at every single opportunity. Because it's not his culture, it's not his fight, and he's just not good at anything. So he's pretty good at catching stuff and throwing it back. Yeah, that's like it's his one... It's all in the reflex. It's all in the reflex. It's just like one... That's his one trick. Yeah, so it, it seems strange to me that like he's the one who to the best of my knowledge, has also been a central figure in the comic book, too. Yeah. So Now, uh, Greg Pak is a fine writer, so maybe I'll give it a chance just based on the fact that it's him. It'll be crazy, I'm sure. Mm. But My fear is that it won't be crazy enough. Anything else? Any other publisher? Uh, well, just one item from Oni, uh, Angel City Number 1 by Janet Harvey and Megan Levins. Basically, it's a 1930s noir detective story with a woman protagonist. It doesn't seem to have any other hook beyond that. At the same time, I'm hard-pressed to think of a lot of 1930s noir detective stories with women protagonists, so... Sure. I don't really want to get into, like, the overall discussion that this is going to prompt because this is also the week in which Ghostbusters has been making the debut and we all know what's going on over there. 
But there is something to be said. No, 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 Sean, 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 you don't understand. My childhood is ruined. Is it, Tom? Yes, yes. Is see, it, really? it, hasn't, it hasn't been ruined by the remakes of Robocop or Total Recall or Conan it's or the Teenage Ninja Turtles that was... or the Star Wars sequels or the Avengers. No, no, it's been ruined just by, coincidentally, by the one starring women. If your childhood could survive the kingdom of the Crystal Skull, your childhood is bulletproof. If my childhood and love of Ghostbusters could survive Ghostbusters 2... <laughs> and I've seen the the new Ghostbusters movie. It's not good. It's not good, but... It's fun. Oh, the, the, I didn't even think it was that fun, but oh my god, the complaints. Yeah. And the racism and the misogyny. This is why, like, I didn't want... The to... Frank Choism. <laughs> even Frank Cho, I think, would not have stooped to that level. Yeah. But he's pretty close. But it's like no 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 but saying crying choosing your targets to cry over. Yeah. But, you know, the hill to die on. This is the one that where you have to stop the remake plague. Yeah. No, it's not. And but see this I like I didn't want to get into like that whole discussion, but the reason that it's relevant in relation to Angel City is just because like my thinking process here with this particular title, with this particular solicitation text, is so simple that I don't understand why it seems to fly over so many people's heads. Case in point, right? I'm reading this and I'm like, okay, 1930s noir detective story with a woman. That's literally the only thing that you get from this entire premise, right? And I'm like, you know what? I have not actually seen a lot of those. That's new. That's innovative. That's something that I'm not used to seeing. That's the end line of all of this. It's a big part of what made Rat Queen so appealing too, right? Like you're looking at this particular configuration and this setting and you all of a sudden drop a bunch of women into it and you're like, you know what? This is new. I haven't seen this before. Over one half of humanity can contribute something to your entertainment needs. Go figure, right? I can get bored with certain things and certain patterns when they repeat themselves over and over and over and over again and how refreshing it is to just once see something that does something differently. Uh, I just want to say, as long as we talk about this, uh, IDW, you have Sophie Campbell's phone number. <laughs> she likes Ghostbusters. This is a comic that should happen. And she's free. I think she's bringing back her Shadow Eyes stuff from uh, Slave Labor. But yeah, this is a comic that should happen. I didn't like the movie, but I will read the heck out of that. Comic. Oh, yeah. That's about it for previews. Yeah, reviews? Reviews. What do you got? Uh, shall we start with The Hunt? Let's begin with The Hunt. This is by uh, Colin Lorimer from Image. Uh, yeah, and this is a like fantasy horror series about Irish mythology. Uh, Orla Roche is a teenager who keeps having strange visions of terrible things happening all around her that nobody else can see. And as you have it in these stories, nobody believes her that you can see these terrible things. And it's all related to an incident in her childhood. And the first issue is sort of introduction to the character and and like slow reveal of what exactly led to this series of visions. Right. What'd you think of it? Uh, it's okay, I'd say. It does what it wants to do pretty well, but it's just, it's not for me. It's one of those, well, slow reveal of something that is pretty obvious to the reader. Because obviously she sees these things, right? Otherwise we wouldn't have a series. So yeah. the big question that leads the first issue, does she, does she not? Well, yeah, she does. Right. It's not going to be a horror series that ends the first issue with, well, no, there's nothing scary out there. Everything is fine. Yeah. That that would be interesting. It's like <laughs> the amazing adventures of this utterly crazy girl just 
being slowly driven insane. That's actually curious. I would read that. Yeah, that would be interesting. Although that would make it, I guess, more like psychological horror than supernatural yeah. horror. Uh, I'll be honest. I sort of agree with you in that I'm not entirely sure what to think of this. On a technical level, it achieves what it's trying to do, right? And the pace is relaxed without being lazy. Yeah. There was, you know, it allows us to dwell in the world of these characters. Yeah, absolutely. But still providing enough plot for the first issue. While it's also not just... leaving some gaps, like because there's mm-hmm. a lot of discussion about what Orla went through in those missing years that we don't see in the first issue. Or what exactly happened to her grandmother. Right. There was one thing that I thought was interesting, where Lorimer sort of works against the curve, so to speak, which is that Orla is not one of those cliche horror characters who had this traumatic supernatural event in her childhood and then forgot about it and had like a normal life, right? She's been hospitalized, she's been psychiatrically evaluated, all of that is true, but as we see uh, towards the end of the issue... She has never stopped being aware of the supernatural. Like, she Mm -hmm. just treats it as a matter-of-fact thing because she can see these things, right? But it's not like, oh my god, I had this horrible thing happen to me when I was a child and I suppressed it. And it's like, no, she knows exactly what's going on. It's like, what was that movie two years ago? Paranorman? Paranorman, yes. Yeah, yeah. Obviously not as kid-friendly. This one has a lot more murder than Paranorman. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant, like, Paranorman wasn't cute. (laughs) It's like, no, of course it was. It was so cute. But, um, yeah, so, like, that was sort of the thing that I appreciated about Lorimer's approach here because it could have played out very stereotypically. And we have seen examples where it's the same old trope of, like, when I was a kid, this thing happened, and I repressed it, and I didn't remember, but now I'm an adult, and my life is a mess anyway, and it's all because of this one thing that happened to me, and now I have to find out what happened, and no, no, now I know what happened. And I, like, you know, it, it's the same sort of, like, plot beat that tends to repeat itself. I like the fact that here, it, it's such an essential part of Orla's characterization that whatever gift she has that lets her see these creatures has never left her. Right, because she's described as always drawing these elaborate images of these demons and monsters or whatever, and everyone thinks she's schizophrenic or something. But the fact of the matter is she is drawing what she actually sees. It's drawn by Lormir as well. La Fuente is just doing the colors. Okay. And it's interesting because the colors for me are the least of this issue in terms of art. It's yeah. a bit early 90s vertigo-ish, you know, drawn it all in muted color palette. Yeah. It's a bit muted. and uh, But on the other hand, like given the genre and the tone that Lorimer's aiming for, it's not surprising. Well, yeah, but something like Witches is also, you know, very bleakly colored, but it's bleak, not muted. You know, um, it, it adds it adds to the feeling rather than just being like a slog, like part which of the this problem, is a bit of a slog. It's interesting that you brought up Witches as a comparison because, like, for example... One of the things that I always assumed about the art in witches specifically was that, you know, the reason that it's so washed out and gray or whatever is that it's related to the setting, right? They're in the middle of, like, the American wasteland, right? The Dust Bowl, like, middle America nothingness, just sand and dust and, and whatever. So, of course, it's gray and washed out and all that. Here, when you're doing something that's set in Ireland, you would expect more color, Especially if you're dealing with something like the Wild Hunt, right? Like, which is like this major mythological element where you would assume it would be less like shades of gray and black. I don't know. Something more stark, right? More lively. Yeah. But then again, we don't actually see much of the hunt in this one. We just see him 
towards the end. Well, we see like two examples of supernatural creatures. One uh, involving Orla's father and one at the very end. Yeah. But they're both, they're sort of like Cthulhu-ish. Yeah, it's like and this it, generic jagged anvil. Yeah, like bones claws. everywhere, carapace, it's very insectoid. I don't know. It's it's an interesting horror, take on horror, it. Visual horror is kind of stuck, right? We haven't had anything out there. Something that really broke the paradigm in a long, long while. Well, I mean, you nailed it back when we were talking about witches to begin with. Like, way, way back in the show's archives, you were mentioning that the problem with visual horror in comics is that there's no way to properly pace the reveal of a grotesque creature to freak the reader out. You turn the page, that image is staring you in the face. All of it, so to speak. So it's not so easy to manipulate the expectations of the audience and to play with what they think they're seeing versus what they're actually seeing. Yeah, most horror comics are just like horror with the quote-unquote just action series with monsters. Or, you know, no, there are a couple you know, of like... Because I've, I've read like a ton of Steve Nile comics and some of them I like, some of them I didn't, but none of them actually gave me chills. Right. You know, you don't... I've never finished one of these type of horror comics sitting... With eyes open, afraid to go to sleep. No, and I, don't, been, I don't think that that happens. I, there's so few comics that made me like legit afraid. Stuff like Beautiful Darkness. Well, or... I was terrified of Mark Miller's Trouble. <laughs> uh, there was this odd thing called The Blot by uh, Kenan Marshall Keller. Mm-hmm. I think that was terrifying because you literally had no idea what's going on. It's just a series of strange things happening to people without any explanation. And there's a literal blot on the pages keep growing and growing and over, physically overtaking the stuff that you're reading. Now, see, that's creepy. Yeah, that's creepy. But I because think it's you, also you have no idea. But at this point, it's like, we don't know what the monster is, but we know what type of story we're in. And therefore, we're not afraid because we know the rules, right? Yeah. And for the most part, Lorimer follows those rules. So, mm-hmm. you know, right down to the whole notion of like a familial connection with the grandmother and what's all... It's like, yeah, okay, we figure. Yeah, I, that's the problem, right? It's doing its job well, but it's doing its job well in a field that should shock and surprise you, not just give you the same old thing over and over again. Exactly. Like like I said, the one innovation here is really like Orla's characterization. And to be completely honest with you, the only reason that I'm considering coming back for more is only because like I want to see if Lorimer is going to capitalize on that. If we are dealing here with a situation where she is working with a protagonist who is designed to go against type, someone Hmm. who has been aware of all these supernatural hijinks all along and what effect that has had on her versus being ignorant and having like a normal life and then like remembering the past. Because the problem Uh. with the remembering the past narrative style is that more often than not, it's just like, let me live my normal life and get well adjusted so I can be just like the everyman person that the audience can identify with. And then I'll remember like this traumatic thing that happened in my past, but it's not going to completely unhinge me psychologically because I had my normal life. So I'm well adjusted and I can, I can take it. Right. And then I'm like a normal person in a horror environment. And like, okay, well, maybe we can try to mix that up a little bit. So that's really the only... And also, like, there's not a lot of Irish mythology in this story. Much, I don't know my Irish mythology very well, so I'll take your word on it. Much le- like... No, just in terms of, like, there are no creatures that are explicitly mentioned. Right? There's never any mention of... Like, in Red Thorn, in the first issue, you were dealing with, like, 
creatures from Scottish mythology. And they said, like, they had names, they had identities. Here, it's like, you know, well, there, there are these things, but you don't know what they are. And in fact, like, people who have seen Orla's drawings don't recognize them either. Right? Like, it's not like, there's like, oh, you're drawing a selkie. Or you're drawing, like, you know, King Oberon or something. You know, like, you're not... Somehow, I cannot imagine a selkie in a horror story. Uh, those things can be pretty creepy, depending on how you draw them. Well, uh, the last the last two times I've saw like a selkie story were one in the Tom Moore uh, animated feature Song of the Sea, mm-hmm. and the other was in Lumberjanes. So <laughs> horror really Lumberjanes, wasn't the yeah. Lumberjanes has a great way of like deflating any possibility of real horror. But yeah. you know that's that's fair. It's a giant, terrible monster. It's so adorable. Aww. You just want to take him home and cuddle him. Yeah, except he's bigger than my house. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I am going to stick around, I think, for at least another issue just to see where we're going with this. What about you? Um. Well, now that you've talked about it, I am curious to see where it goes. I'm probably going to come back to issue two, but that's it. Yeah. Like, if you, don't, if you don't get me by the second issue, I'm done. And not because it's bad, just because... There's so much great stuff out there. I don't have time for the you merely na- good, as it were. You nailed it. Mm-hmm. You nailed it. We are living at a point in time now where we have so many choices. We just don't have to settle for mediocrity anymore. It's a golden age, which is a great crossover for our next review. When it talks about <laughs> golden age superheroes. See? Take See what away. I did there? Black Hammer, number one. Written by Jeff Lemire. Art by Dean Ormston. Colors by... Dave Stewart, the best colorist in the business, mm. and letters by Todd Klein. <laughs> so that's a superstar team right there, it right? Is. Okay, so we have here a series of Golden Age type superheroes. Abraham Slam in Golden Age Crime Buster. The interstellar adventurer Colin Weird and his robot sidekick Talkie Walkie. <laughs> the savage Barber Alien. America's flying sweetheart Golden Gale and Mistress of the McBear. Madam Dragonfly, and they all were the world's greatest superheroes, except now they live in a farm in the middle of small town nowhere, and they can't leave, and Abraham is kind of okay with this, but everybody else is pretty pissed and want to get out, but they just can't. They're stuck there on the farm. Yep. Uh, So, Sean, what did you think? Okay, well... Let's recall that this book was solicited a while ago, but was delayed because of Dean Ormston's health issues. Yep. Uh, And yet, you know, here it is. What did I think of it? Was it worth the wait? Based on the strength of the first issue, I don't think so. There was a bit of a problem here. First of all, I mean, in terms of the high concept, I loved it. Like, the idea here is that these Golden Age superheroes got into a fight with something that the story calls the Anti-God... Which sounds pretty crisis-y. And they defeated this creature, but somehow in the process of it, they ended up in this, like, in, on this farm in the middle of nowhere, right? Like, small town American hell, basically. And they've all gotten old. It's been 10 years. Uh, well, except one of them was forever. They're all, like, stuck in a certain situation. They're not growing older, so one of them is, like, a nine-year-old girl forever. Well, no, she's a nine-year-old girl now, but she yeah, used to be she, older because she says, I miss having tits. Yeah, but she's stuck for the last ten years. Yeah. She said, I've been nine-year-old. So has, they're like, 
Something been, has happened. Some of them have been changed, but they're stuck in their new position. Yeah, the colonel, for example, is is in some kind of like intangible state where he's caught between worlds. Yeah. Yeah. So, so something happened to each and every one of these. Now, the primary tension in the story is indeed the fact that Abraham, he's trying to build like this community for them and for them to stay together, and he's frustrated by the fact that all they want is to leave. But this was where the story lost me because. Immediately after they complain about like, oh, I wish I could leave. I wish I could get out of here. They go into town. Like there is an actual town populated by actual people who interact Regular with them. Regular folks who apparently don't know that they're superheroes, yeah. right? So the thing that I did not understand is how exactly are they trapped? Well, they trapped in a region apparently, or maybe the town is just the whole world. Did you get that impression from the story? Well, yeah, because they say they can't leave. And they say they what... can't leave, but then they get into the car and they drive to town and the no, sheriff... They, they, they can't leave this world, whatever this world is, and we don't know... That's one of the big questions, right? How big is this world that they're stuck in? I didn't see any evidence in the story that they are in, like, a world, so to speak. Like, there's nothing... This might be down to Armstrong's art, I don't know. Like, when you look at how the city and how the farmer set up, there's no indication, like, for, for all I can tell, they're in Smallville. And like, okay, so just get in your car and keep driving and go over the state limits and go to New York. Like, I don't... I, I assume it's a bit like Nightville, where if you drive far enough, you just keep coming back. And if that had been shown in the issue, I would be like, okay, I get... I, I, I don't need this shown. I think it was explained enough within the context. How was it my pre- My big problem is something else completely. Do tell. I would rather prefer to read The Adventures of These Heroes. They look like a bunch of really fun characters. And then, you know, he sets them all up. And I would really like to read uh, Golden Age Crime Buster, Abraham Slam, and his good friend, Colonel Weird. That's a great name. That's a great design. And then you just stick yeah, him in the farm. But it's not... I mean, it's a great design, but it's just like... It's a design that is meant to invoke a certain nostalgia for like, oh, let's go tell the story of like, you know, he probably fought giant gorillas and like, you know, Nazi criminal bosses or whatever and the mob. I'm fine with that. But, I like that. But it's done, Tom. It's done. It's old. It's older than they are at this point. And people being stuck in an unfamiliar environment can't leaving is also as old as time, Sean. When it's superheroes, not so much. Wasn't wasn't there a Gail Simone series like 10 years ago, Tranquility? No, Welcome to Tranquility was a retirement town. They weren't trapped there. They just chose to live there. If this were pitched as like, what if Lost had happened in a small American town and the cast were made entirely of superheroes? I'm like, you know what? That's at least a juxtaposition of different patterns that I have not seen in that particular shape before. That would be one thing. Here it's like... If you want to make clear that there is something wrong with this world, which explains why they are so desperate to escape, you might want to, you don't have to spell it out, especially not in the first issue, but give some kind of indication. Because I, like, again, looking at these people, Abraham, for example, flirts with the sheriff's ex-wife, right? He's yep. building some kind of relationship with her. Clearly, this it, it's not like they're robots or something. They're not phantoms. Whoever these people are that they're interacting with, they're alive and they're they're like human beings. So I don't like. It's not clear to me what it is that they are trying to escape and how they are stuck. Because it's not even that they can't leave the farm, and if they can leave the farm, presumably they can leave the town too. 
So I assume I assume it will be explained in the following issues. Probably. I just I'm not sure if I want to read them because it's a central issue though. Like it's it's a central part of the premise that these people are stuck in this place called Black Hammer and they can't leave. Yeah, but the central part of issue one is not how exactly they're stuck in what the world is. It's establishing characters and interactions, right? Yeah. And it does that pretty well. You know, you get a sense of all the characters and what do they do and why they do it and what is the relationship between various people within the group, yeah. which is good. And you can tell that some of them are analogs for established characters, like Barbalian's uh, human alias is Mark Marks. <laughs> like, yeah, I know who that is. You don't have to explain. I get it. Yeah, but it's not it's not completely out there because John Jones, the Martian Manhunter, is not a barbarian, right? So it, he's, he's from playing, Mars. Though. He's playing with tropes. He's not yeah. just copying. His, thank God, it's not one of those Mark Miller. Here's a Superman. Here's oh, no, a no, Batman. No, 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 no. no, no. Not only that. Um, there's actually some thematic similarity between this and I don't know. Have you read Plutona? Uh, not yet. I'm waiting for the collection. It should come out next week, I think. Well, I'm not going to spoil anything for you in that case, but I will say that there is a similarity, I think, in Lemire's approach here and in Plutona, which is like the the fact that a certain character is a superhero is not the most interesting thing about them. Hmm. And I think that I'm okay with that particular view only because. When Lemire does go for traditional superheroes, it doesn't usually work out for him. You know, his X-Men hasn't been all that great. Um, he did uh, Animal Man, was it, right? Or Swamp Thing, I forget, one of the two. Uh, Animal Man, and I think Age, uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein yeah, of Shade. It's like, it, it wasn't anything inspirational. Certainly, uh, it, was His it. Hawkeye was pretty bad, I Yeah, see. you know, so these aren't characters that he... It's not his milieu. Yeah, it's not his wheelhouse. If he has to use superheroes, I found, like, in terms of the stuff that he's published so far, he tends to use them in the best possible way when it's not about the superheroics, right? When it's not about, like, fighting the anti-god and doing the whole Watchmen thing where, like, you're the Golden Age hero and here's the Silver Age hero who's going to replace you. It's like, we have Astro City for that. We don't need more. Like we, what we need is like some some innovation in the field, and I think that this is an example of that. I would have liked, I don't know, I feel like maybe if this issue had been double sized and there had been a bit more about the characters, because like Madame Dragonfly, for example, is barely present in the story. Yeah, she turns up once in the forest with like crows everywhere, just staring at you, and it's like okay. The, and the last page reveal is just—it's not really interesting. It's a bit oh yeah, it's obvious. You know, they're stuck in in another world, so someone is going to come looking for them, right? I do enjoy that it's the lowest lane character specifically who's being used to investigate that, right? Like it could have just as easily been some scientist or whatever, but it's like she's a journalist, so yeah. she will investigate. Sure. Um. What do you think about Ormston's art? I liked it. It's it's the proper art for this kind of story. You know, it's low tier enough in the sense of there these are people stuck in a farm, but then you have the actual character design where they're in the superhero, you know, outfits and it's just weird and wonderful. Yeah. I I just I really loved it. I love Colonel Weird. I love <laughs> you know, the old school nineteen fifties giant robot. Yeah. Well, but you giant, can find like, that like, what like six feet. Yeah, but, seven? You, but you could find that in so many different places. So yeah, many. So, but but because it's been done so many times, it's hard to do it well. 
because we've seen it so many times. Right, which is why but I'm this... glad that Lemire isn't going in that direction. Because I think that if he did try to make this sort of like a golden age superhero fight, that it would just be less interesting because that's not his wheelhouse. I'm sticking around, again, like like The Hunt, I'm sort of cautiously optimistic about this. It's interesting that we reviewed those specific two issues back to back because the thing that they both have in common from my perspective is that they do both invoke sort of very clear genre stereotypes while at the same time not completely turning them on their head because at the end of the day, the plot, there are no major plot twists here. Like there was not a moment in either The Hunt or Black Hammer where you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. What? How did this happen? Like, you're not shocked at any point. No. But I do think that the even like the small twists to the formula, even the small changes could yield interesting results. For that, at least, I'm willing to stick around, like, give it another issue, maybe another two issues, but I do think that on its own, this isn't something that would hold up and say, like, you all must read Black Hammer number one. Not so much. Maybe, like, if the first trade really manages to capitalize on that, I'll be like, okay, read this. And Jeff Lemire, to be fair, is one of those writers who might start off slow, and then really, really stick the landing at the end because, like, um, Plutona also, the first issue is sort of like, ah, okay, you know, very run-of-the-mill, very seemingly average, but he nailed that ending. So I'm, I'm willing to be patient with him, I think. Okay. Uh, shall we go on to our last number one? Let's. So this is... Snot Girl number one. Snot Girl number one. Written by Brian Lee O'Malley and drawn by Leslie Hunt. And we have waited. Just, I think we've waited for this more than we've waited for Black Hammer. Well, yeah, because there are two very unique things about it. One, it's Brian Lee O'Malley doing an ongoing, a monthly. Which he even says at the bank. It's like, my first ongoing book. What have I done? Yeah, and it's Brian Lee O'Malley drawn, uh, words drawn by someone else. He had assistance on second, but he was always drawing his own stuff up mm-hmm. until now. Yeah. And this is Leslie Hung, who's a newcomer. I at least never read anything else by her. Doesn't ring any bells. So, Sean, explain them the story. I will explain. So Lottie Person is a fashion blogger who has unfortunate and horrific allergies. While visiting her allergy doctor, a new physician comes in and decides to put her on a drug trial for a new kind of treatment. The rest of the issue is taken up with Lottie's social life, her blogging, the sort of like ennui of a 25-year-old who has just... 25 and three quarters. And three quarters. She's making every second count. And um, she has been estranged from her boyfriend, and she meets this really interesting uh, girl at a club. I think she's romantically interested in her. It's kind of hard to tell because she... She seems to be attracted to her, but then at the same time, she's like, oh, we're going to be best friends, and we have... She's attracted to her image, which is very a Brian Lee O'Malley thing to do. Yeah, that could be, that could be, that absolutely makes sense for O'Malley. Uh, And then, without spoiling, let's just say there's an end of issue twist here. That completely turns the story on its head. and thank- It's almost Brian K. Vonish, right? It's like, is. whoa! It is. That was a whoa moment. And I'm so glad it was there because I'm going to be completely honest with you. Up until that moment, I was kind of horrified. 
And I'll preface... Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'll preface this by saying that it might just be me. Like, it might just be me feeling like maybe I might have outgrown Brian Lee O'Malley. Because when you look at Lottie as a character, she's this very self-absorbed, very irritating teenage protagonist. Similar in some ways to the way that Scott Pilgrim was written in the beginning of the story. Or the protagonist of Seconds in the early parts of her story. Yeah. For some reason, Lottie got more under my skin in terms of an irritant than they did. And I wasn't sure why. Maybe it's, it was like I was just old and I'm cranky and I'm not in the mood for it <laughs> anymore. I don't know. Maybe I am turning into Waldorf and Sattler or like Sandy Eagle. I don't know. But, you know, because she spends most of this issue talking about like, oh, she has 70,000 notifications from strangers on Facebook and zero new messages from her friends. So she doesn't have true friends and she's isolated and she has these allergies. And isn't she sad? Isn't it so unfortunate? Look at poor Lottie. She's so lonely. She's sitting in front of her computer. She's taking glamorous uh, selfies of herself and posting them online. She's doing all of these things. I'm just like, look, I am exhausted. It's like just reading this makes me want to kill you. And it's like, and I here's I think that's the point because if there's something, one thing that Brian Lee O'Malley does very well is writing a protagonist with self-loathing that is not expressed inwardly enough, but is recognizable to the reader. Because the big point of Scott Pilgrim was that Scott Pilgrim is an asshole, right? Yeah, and that he doesn't know that he's an asshole. And the, the read and most of the readers didn't know he was an asshole up until book what four five that we sort of realized that oh right and we were sort of with the, I don't remember the protagonist of second Katie. name I'm sorry Katie hmm? yeah we were sort of with her in the beginning because she she's living through a really rough time and we have this whole story from her viewpoint but part of the the story is understanding that your viewpoint is your own yeah and that you're only the hero of your own story that you can be the villain. In someone else's story. And this is something that Brian Leo Melly does very well. And the other good thing that he always does. Is writing these adults. Who still want to be young. Right? Who still cling to this idea of. Well I still have time to find my way in the world. I'm I'm 25 and 3 quarters. <laughs> this is such a great and thing. And she gives names to like. Every single person that she sees. Like this is cute girl. This is coffee girl. This is. Or, uh... or the fact that her boyfriend is. Not even hanging around with is talking online with someone who might be younger than her. Not even prettier. Yeah, she's saying, like, oh, oh, she's younger and pretty. Two years younger than her. <laughs> Not like her, her initial like reaction to that is, what? She's younger and prettier than I am? Oh, she's just younger. And that's still enough to drive her up the wall. Um, th- there is like a lot of humor to it, but I wonder if maybe part of the problem here is that there's less of a presence of the supporting cast. Like even in the earlier books of Scott Pilgrim, even like in the very beginning of seconds, uh, like when you're starting to get a sense that Katie and Scott are really sort of self-absorbed brats, for lack of a better term, you had other characters around to sort of distract you from how unbearable their actions were. Like in, in Scott Pilgrim, if you were looking to like get away from Scott being a douchebag, you had Knives, who was having mm-hmm. like her whole entire storyline on her own. Or you had like um not necessarily Ramona, because Ramona wasn't much to write home about. But you know, you had Envy at the very end coming in, and like all of a sudden she has a storyline. 
And it, it was the same with seconds, right? Like you have all of these secondary characters who were living their lives within the network that Katie. Yeah, but in. we're comparing, you know, graphic novels sure. with hundreds no, of pages I, I to a 22 that. page. I recognize that. It's like here, Lottie does have these two friends, right? The cute girl and normal girl, so to speak. But, and again, like that might, that is absolutely something that I'm willing to attribute to the fact that this is his first ongoing, you know? But it, it was sort of a case of like, can someone please, can someone please interrupt the story and show me a couple of panels of someone who is not Lottie person that I can actually not want to strangle? <laughs> well, since, since her, my take on the story is that blogging. we meant not, not to want to strangle her, but to sort of understand the problems with her personality and the way these problems are a reflection of lots of the readers' problems. Because this is definitely a comics of, you know, the 21st century. Of the media-saturated world where... Okay, I'm, I'm sounding... Again, I'm sounding like Sam Deagle now. <laughs> you know, these kids... This with their... is not cultural. Yeah. And it's... I, I really like the main metaphor here where she's... You know, her whole point, her whole existence is based on the fact that she controls her image. Where in her own life, she can barely control her own bodily functions, right? Yeah, like her allergies are the sticking point for her because it's the one thing that she can't control. And... Interestingly enough, like like I said, the, the initial reaction that I was having as I was reading it was like, oh, God, I think I'm too old for this. And then when O'Malley delivers that twist at the end, where all of the different threads converge, right? Because it's like it's her relationship with this new friend that she is seemingly infatuated with. It is the fact that she's bumping into this boyfriend again. And it's also the fact that on top of all of that, she's on this new medication, which is doing things to her. All of that comes together in like a very effective way at the end, and that was what got me back into it. Uh, Leslie Young's heart. Let's talk about this a bit. I really like the sense of character design, but like Ming Doyle, I really like the design. I'm still not sure about the actual, you know, movement within the page. Um, but because there's this feeling of constant montaging, right? Yeah, and maybe it's. Well, it's part of the story, right? Because it's someone who lives online and always like, oh, here's my new image. Yeah, but she's then a fashion again... blogger. Like, here's a picture. In fact, one of the things that happens, like the, the scene where she and her friend are about to meet up. So she's mm -hmm. like, she's leaning against the wall and taking a very deliberate photo of herself. So like, that makes sense that it would be static, I think. Yeah, but this whole thing is like a series. It feels more like a series of moments than an actual movement within the pages, even within the club, right? Where you would expect a sense of movement. Um, would you though? Because she doesn't see people as kinetic and moving mm. and, you know, like she sees them as labels. She, like Lottie's whole personality is geared towards looking at these people and assigning them a certain tag, like within two seconds of meeting them. Oh, that's interesting. And so then, everybody is literally yeah. stuck within the image, right? She lives in a world of like cardboard cutouts, basically. And the only person who challenges that is someone who is drawn with like loose hair that flows around her and like she she's someone who's cooler than her. Yeah. And that she's aware of that. That does seem like something O'Malley would think of to have like every time she looks at someone, even her ex-boyfriend, when she looks at him, she looks at him as if he's in a uh, screenshot. She like she is seeing the world as, you know, stills from her cell phone camera. Yeah, and uh, Mickey Queen doing the colors, and 
this is how you do color oh, properly, yeah. I would say, because the mood actually shifts. You you have the green sickly ones where she's stuck on the floor and she's in the shade and like the world is terrible. And then you have the bright, shiny, oh, I'm in my element. I, I control the environment. I control your outlook on me. Yeah. And when she suffers from the allergies, there's like a bit of like dimming down of the color. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as she takes the medication, she's back out. Yeah. It's really interesting. I'd say overall it's a very good issue. There there's some problems here. Most of them, I think, come from the fact that uh, O'Malley is still like finding his rhythm a bit yeah. as a writer of an ongoing. But and he's clearly really aware good. of that. Yeah, but it's really good, and I'm going to stick with it. Likewise, it's like there's no doubt in my mind that he is going to take this story in an interesting place. And then my big hope is that he knows, like, he has an endpoint in mind. It's not just well, a free willing, because he can, O'Malley can sometimes go a bit, you know, crazy on tangents. Yeah, he can. But I think that... Seconds was my favorite work of his because it was just one thing, right? Yeah. He knew, it, it was one plot, he knew what he was doing with it, he knew where all the characters were beginning and ending. Yeah, no, that's valid. I mean, like... Again, the, the most obvious point of comparison for that would be Scott Pilgrim, which yeah. started out really strong and really focused. And then by book four or five, it was just like, okay, th- this story is still going on. And then all of a sudden you're like dealing with Knives' father and you have all of these other things going on. Roxy suddenly like she's here, she's gone, she's here. She's gone. It's like you, you sort of lost control of the narrative thrust, as it were. I, th- I don't remember if I've read his first graphic novel. What was it? Over the Sea? Under the Sea? No idea. Uh, I, I was introduced to him through Scott Pilgrim. I read Seconds yeah. and now Snot Girl. And of course, I will be picking up Worst World when it comes out. But <laughs> yeah, um, what came before that? No idea. There was one graphic novel from Oni, like one volume. I don't remember the name, though. Lost at Sea. Lost at Sea. Lost at Sea. I, I might look it up, to be honest. It's, you know... O'Malley is an incredibly gifted writer, and I think he's worth sticking around for. It's amazing because he's someone who started off so young and was immediately within his own vision. It was never trying to, like, follow someone else's footsteps or bond to some commercial pressure. No, straight from the gate, he was, this is my story, right? This is my vision. Yeah, he's developed a narrative style that is distinctly his own. And I think that he has gotten better at following through with all of these like multiple plot threads that are going on simultaneously without getting tangled up in his own web, so to speak. And figuring out the right creative team to help him bring this vision out. Yeah. Because Scott Pilgrim art is a bit on the... It's not the greatest, right? There's there's a lot of charm there, but the faces, man, it's like... He has like four faces, I think, in Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> it would, I mean... Before the color versions came out, I, I almost... read the color versions. I did. And I'll tell you why. When it was black and white, I had so much trouble differentiating between, say, Ramona and Kim. Because... You need the haircuts, right? The haircuts oh are the one clue. Oh, my God. It was like... No, the, the hair colors were different. That was the only thing that helped <laughs> separate them. Because whenever he would introduce these characters, you're right. Like, he tends to go towards very, very specific facial configurations and when you're reading black and white it is so easy to get confused between these characters and like seconds didn't have that problem because seconds had color yeah but at the same time it's like you know his male characters almost always have the same like jawline and same uh, facial expressions and it's like yeah so leslie hung 
puts a if bit nothing else. She's very different. Yeah, you would never confuse her with Brian Lee O'Malley in terms. Not of only art. that, but like in context of the story itself, there's no situation where you would confuse Lottie for one of her friends, or you would confuse Carolyn with uh, the girl that her ex-boyfriend is seeing now. Right. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting. I'm I'm sticking around for the long run. And our last review of this episode is our patented trade slash uh, story arc review. And we're going to take the first four issues of The Fix by Steve Leiber Art and Nick Spencer writing. This is from Image Comics. In the interests of fairness, we're back with Nick Spencer. You don't like Nick Spencer, do you? I don't like Nick Spencer. You should talk. Well, I don't like some of Nick Spencer <laughs> and some of him I really like. I... The Fix is an example of something that I pretty like, actually. Well, we have our two protagonists. One is uh, Brando and one is Roy. And they're partners in crime in which they steal, they rob, they cheat. They do everything they can to put their hands on some money because they own money to some very vicious people. But the big thing is, A, the vicious people they own money to are cops. And B, they themselves are officers of the law. Yeah. And it's like a series of cons and heists in which everybody's a terrible person. And a hilarious person at that. Yeah. Like, we should point out this is not like crime noir. This is a crime comedy. Yeah. And this team did the superior foes of Spider-Man from Marvel Comics, which was one of my favorite Marvel comics for the last few years because it was pretty much the same thing. It was a, like a heist comedy with a bunch of terrible people. Not terrible in the sense of like, you know, Hannibal Lecter will eat your liver. Terrible in the sense of we, they're like, small-minded backstabbers who would do anything to get, you know, one more dollar to get over the competition. And Roy is sort of like the protagonist here in the sense that he's the worst of the lot. You know, Brando, he's he's a bad person, but he's, like, stupid bad. Yeah, he has, like, some redeeming qualities by virtue of being a complete idiot. Yeah. (laughs) And and liking dogs. And liking... Well, not initially, but eventually getting to that point. Well, Roy is just really... he's. He's like, he's this kid who sees a bank heist and immediately thinks, this is the way to get money. And then sees a cop shooting the bank robber and saying, this is a great way to get respect and money. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I thought it was very fun, but unlike Superior Foes of Spider-Man, which worked with a pre-existing cast of characters, right? In there you had uh, Shocker and Boomerang and the Beetle and like well-known B and C list villains. Here he sort of had to set everything up by himself and because of that there's a bit of reliance on stock characters i would say um yeah like certainly the person that um uh, josh the one that they're working for yeah is absolutely like a very stock sort of hi i'm this innocent guy that you wouldn't assume is threatening but watch me like decapitate these people and eat their skin or whatever yeah, he is Hannibal Lecterish. Yeah, he's like, oh, hello, I see you guys are doing so great. Isn't it wonderful? Like, we're having great weather, and look, I'm taking care of my baby girl, and we're going to this vegan place, and also I'm going to have to cut out your taints. Mm. It's like it's a funny gag, but it's it's well-worn. Yeah, it's like th- that in itself is not new. Um, this was funny. Like, it, it, it has some really amusing moments that I didn't expect from Nick Spencer, but... There was one persistent thing that bothered me throughout the entire four issues, which is okay. that the dialogue is so ridiculously over the top. And not even 
like, how can I put this? Okay, so there's a conversation in the first issue that he has with Donovan, his film producer friend, right? Yeah. Where Donovan is, like, going on this long-winded monologue about how this one time he was accident, like, he was sleeping with his dominatrix, and he accidentally tasted his own semen, and now ever since then, he's been obsessed with the taste, and it's like, it's this whole long-winded conversation that goes nowhere, right? It has no meaning at all, except to be, like, one of those moments that show you how crazy he is. If that were isolated to that particular character, I'd be like, okay, I get it. That's fun. Everybody in this book talks like that. Every There's the sense of being in love with his own dialogue tics. Oh, right? my God. Like, you were talking about when he has that flashback that explains why he decided to become a cop, right? Yeah. So he's like, so this robber came into the bank and blah, 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 blah. And then the cop shot him in the head. And I saw how cool it would be to get kickbacks. And, blah, blah, blah. and then, like, it ends with the captions like, man... Those three weeks where that cop was screwing my mom were the best of my life. And it's like, oh, God. It's like everyone talks like Donovan in this book. and it's. But like, on the other hand, as a Shane Black fan, I can't really complain because this is <laughs> the Shane Blackest comics you would ever have. Yeah. Because, uh, for instance, Brian Michael Bendis really wants to be David Mamet, but he can't. He's not. Uh, Nick Spencer and, Di- and Steve Leiber in this series really want to do Shane Black, and they are. If are Shane they? Black were a comic book... If Shane Black were a comic book series... He would have been the fix. This is like literally. But even in Shane Black films, like if you're talking about, uh, what was the name of the one with Robert Downey Jr.? Uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, yeah. Even there, yeah, you have the characters who have like those verbal tics, right? The The motor mouth. Yeah. Everybody's a motor mouth. But they're not all motor mouths. That's the thing. It's like here, when I was reading the first issue, I'm like, okay, so Donovan is going to be the designated wacko who talks in like really overblown like exaggerated meant to like shock you all of these crazy monologues right he's going to be the comic relief character fantastic Roy is talking like that two pages later you know it's like and then Brando even Brando like because uh, uh, the, the plot of the story requires Brando to befriend this dog <laughs> and again like it's one a of funny the greatest last page reveals it is a funny they're talking about like uh, we need you to sneak something through LAX. And Roy is, of course, immediately horrified because you can't get through LAX because there's an incorruptible, untouchable officer of the law there who has arrested over 1,200 people. And you see, like, this big black guy walking through and you think that it's him and then it's like, it's the dog, Pretzels. It's Pretzels. Pretzels, the dog, has been catching everyone. And, and then Brando has to, like, befriend him. And you think that that's going to be, like written somewhat differently but no brando's whole thing is like oh i found these photos of like these women but they're pornographic but like in the 70s style but they're not like completely revealing themselves and over the top so and then he has this moment where he was like now i'm gonna imagine roy's face on these women and then like he considers and then the next thing you know he's doing you know He's taking care of business, so to speak. And it's like, why is everyone in this book completely insane? It sort of sabotages because, the, the comedic angle. Funny. What I really liked about this is the fact that every issue has like a mini arc within itself. Because one of the big problems with Spencer was his tendency to write not just, you know, arcs, but it basically, if you don't sit and read uh, the whole of Morning Glories in one go, you wouldn't have any idea what's going on, right? Yeah. It's basically meant as a novel and chopped to pieces, but not here. There's an ongoing plot, and I really um, have no idea what, where are they going with the 
what they're gonna do with the starlet and the terrorists maybe i don't know are that seems like some kind of random aside it's like this whole storyline where he he has to serve as bodyguard for this insane starlet but then she yeah. doesn't turn up again in the in the last issue yeah, so so. Uh, so, but they're going somewhere with this, I assume? I don't know. But like I said, the fact that there is an an actual arc within every issue. Um, it, Every issue works as a unit, which is something I really like. Something that you did r- really well, where you always get a sense of satisfaction. If you like the story, you always get a sense of satisfaction from the single issue. Well, there is one other problem with that, though. That every issue, like, ends... Or like the arc ends with proper closure. This one sort of ends on a open cliffhanger that doesn't really not a, not not a proper closure. But there is something is going on. The issues are never just oh this is a setup for what will happen next. Because yes, issue four ends with what's gonna happen, but something else happened before it. Right? We did get the story of Brando and the dog. Or again, the issue issue number three ends with what the fuck was that? That's literally. The last page, but before that, you had 20 pages of something going on. Right. Which is so important and something that not enough people do, right? No. All the time, I just sit there reading arts and like, oh, this works as an art. But if I actually sat down and read it month after month, it would be terrible. It would be boring as hell. Right. Not here, right? This one at least... This is satisfactionary, always. Yeah, this one at least has the redeeming value of being entertaining on its own merit simply because of... Like, the -the over-the-top dialogue. My only concern is that because I read all four of these issues back-to-back, right, as an ARC review, it's like, at some point, it just gets exhausting. It's like, oh my god, everyone here has their dials turned up to 11. It actually is one of those things that would probably work better as a monthly, right? Yeah, I think like... Because I think of something like Paper Girls, which I've also, I've decided to read in ARCs. And I've read the first ARC, and I was ended up thinking... If I read this in single issues, if I allowed every issue to be digested by itself, it would be brilliant. But right, because but I've read it in in one go, it's like, oh, this thing, this thing, this thing, this thing, well, this no, thing. It's like everything always happens. It's two different things, though, I think. I, because like in Vaughn's... Uh, well, it's two different versions of the same problem. I, I don't... The differentiation that I would make there would be the difference with Vaughn as an example, right? Like, the reason that he's better as monthly is because the way that he structures his issues is that there's a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. But if you are reading five chapters in one chunk, that means that every time you hit a cliffhanger, you don't actually have time to process it because as soon as you turn the page, you see what happens next anyway. Here, it's more of a problem of, like, if you're reading this in concentrated batches, it just goes so completely it's, over the top all the time. It's, it's, it's a bit fizzy-pop-ish, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... Uh, it's not it's, it's not, not bad. Me because as you know I like over the top and I really had fun with it. And I Steve Lieber's art but... man is just glorious. The acting of the characters, you know, the one with the again issue three with the actress, where she is she crazy? Is she playing crazy? Is she's playing crazy while actually being crazy at the same time in a different sort of way? You know, you see these emotions on her face and it's amazing work. I have to give Lieber credit too. It is not easy to draw dogs with facial expressions like that. Like, <laughs> not even nice look. And again, issue three, if you have it on page seven, not like him. <laughs> page seventeen, where uh, Roy is trying to drag the Starlet back into the car, and she's turning around and yelling at the and the onlookers. Yeah, 
just amazing, you know, the movement and the expression and even the, the tiny, tiny uh, movement lines on the back of her head when she turns them. Yeah. Just such an amazing work. And Spencer and Liber are just, they're on the same wavelength. And I think they're doing great together. It's not a perfect series. It's not, it's not a perfect arc. And because it's Spencer, I'm a bit afraid it's going, it's going to go over the rails, right? At <laughs> some point, they're going to meet their alternate universe. The so. fix issue 50. They're still in Florida. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully it's not that. Hopefully he understands it, what makes these four issues work. And the praise has been sky high. And also, again, it's nice to see an image series, which is not fantasy science fiction. Sure. I mean, just, we're saying this... And, ho- and hopefully it will stay that way, right? I really hope Steve Lieber is going to keep Nick well, Spencer look, honest. It's like, no, no, Nick, Nick, Nick. I don't know how much... You can... can't bring in another set of characters from the Mirrorverse that are Roy. You can't bring Roy and Brando's imaginary childhood friends into life. It's not that type of story. I should hope not. T- to be fair, though, it's not like Image is shortchanging those either. Because, you know, we do have Kill or Be Killed coming up. Presumably, Velvet finished its first arc, oh, sorry, its third arc, which is like the first part of the story, and is going on hiatus or whatever. But like, I do think that Image is trying to... Yeah, but it's nice to have a comedy series, yeah. right? Something funny and joyful, because Chew's going to end this and year, right? And it was right? that. It was that. And, and we don't have a lot of stuff that is, you know, aiming to be artistic, but lighthearted at the same time. Well, I think lighthearted, possibly comedic, intentionally, no. Yeah, and because also Red Queen said bye bye. Is on hiatus, and yeah, no, you're right. There's not a lot of comedy, comics, comics, which is odd because it's actually in the name, right? Of the medium, tell that to the people who started writing in the 1980s. They did not have time for no comedy. I find myself going back and forth on this because I did like laugh at so many parts of the story that were genuinely amusing. At the same time, it's like, oh, God, like, sometimes I read Spencer's dialogue and it's just like, can someone talk like a normal human being for five minutes? Because <laughs> it's so much. Like, every one of them goes on, like, these long-winded monologues about, and they're funny monologues, but when you read five or six of them simultaneously, or, like, there's a scene where Josh corners Roy in an elevator, and Roy is like, were you waiting in this elevator and, like... F- waiting for me to come in, and then you see like four <laughs> panels of "Hello, Roy." Nope. Hello, Roy. Who's Roy? Hello, Roy. It's funny, but it's not an isolated incident. It's just like all of it is the same. And when my favorite bit is actually the gun to the hand thing, yeah. <laughs> which is just it's over the t- because it's actually we have the two protagonists interacting in a way that immediately brings makes you understand the type of personalities involved. Yeah. And just seeing Roy slowly and methodically overworking his dumbass partner and explaining to him why it's it's a good idea for him to get shot in the head. Yeah, it's gonna be fine. It's a nine millimeter. You're not gonna feel it. It's gonna be. You're gonna heal. It's not even the. I've I've read about it in the paper. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, he, he tells him like that's that's not the hand you use anyway. And then he's like, yes, it is. I use both of them. And it's again, I really like the fact that Roy's. Complete, completely shameless. This is not a jerk with a heart of gold. This is just a jerk with a heart of a bigger jerk bird inside of him. Yeah, but I think that's the, that's the function that the partner serves. Because yeah, if yeah. it were just Roy, then this would be like a character that you don't care what happens to him. Like, there's no... 
He's not a fun criminal. You know what I mean? I, 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 I sort of like, you know, these overt jerk characters. I'm one of the few people whose favorite Green Lantern is Guy Gardner. I, no, because Guy Gardner I, is I, I, like, I like to see them just going with it, right? Well, don't forget that Guy Gardner usually got his comeuppance at the end of the day. Like well, that was pro- you know, that was part of it. Like you can be well. An- Roy certainly gets beaten up quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, but the the fact that he can just shake it off means it's not like he doesn't have anything to lose. You know, which might be part of the problem. Like when you're drafting an asshole character, you have to understand that if your your audience is going to get tired of bumping up against this abrasive personality, unless there's some kind of either humanizing aspect or like. If he's going to be a douchebag all the way through, he's got to pay for it in the end. Yeah. Now, so far, I would still say this is not as good as Superior Foe simply because by working with established characters and universes, Nick Spencer had to downturn his own idiosyncrasies. Well, that and the fact that and I'm sure Marvel were not willing to guarantee him like 50 issues. Yeah, he had 15. Yeah, this was never going to be a situation where it's like, yeah, uh, in 2018, I'm planning to have the Hornet uh, go on a journey of self-discovery. It's like, no. And also, no. there's something that, at, you know, regular people are just regular people, but there is something oddly funny and charming on the fact that, you know, a bunch of supervillains in costumes sitting around in a bar and talking about yeah. the future heist. Well, it goes back to what we were talking about with um, with Black Hammer specifically. The idea that you know, the the trope of like down on their luck, B-list supervillains getting together at a bar and drinking away their miseries and coming up with a really bad heist because they're really bad criminals isn't something that in the Marvel universe, as it currently exists as a publishing line, is not something we have in abundance. You know, when when you look, how many other books can you say had that kind of tone and setup around the period of time when Superior Foes was being published? Not a lot. You know, just as we're saying, like, with Image Now, the the fact that the fix is funny does make it stand out. Not saying that Image doesn't have other funny books, but it's not like, they're not like Boom, where every other miniseries is something like, um, you know, something like Midas Flesh or something like, uh, what was the name? Uh, oh, Kill Strike, where, like, the whole point is to be comedic, yeah. right? Yeah, but this is different because this is R-rated, right? And they're allowed to do uh, stuff that yeah, but you, that Boom wouldn't would can't no, publish. Boom would Kaboom. Boom would never Kaboom publish. Kaboom can't publish this. Kaboom can't publish either. But I'm I mean that just means that you do different things to get the laughs, right? If your mission statement is to make people laugh, is to be comedic in tone, obviously you can't do the same things with a rated R comic that you could with rated PG. But the intention is usually the same. So I do think that, you know, it, it it has a bit more merit in an environment where there aren't many books like that. Certainly DC and Marvel have not exactly been super happy fun time comics in the last five years, right? Heroes yep. fighting heroes, fighting heroes, fighting heroes, crime, death, sadness, betrayal, extinction, blah, 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 blah. So, and, and, like, think about it. This is probably one of the major reasons... I mean, Squirrel Girl is still around, right? Why do you think she's blowing up now? It's Squirrel Girl. She's been around for years. Nobody particularly cared. The reason she's so prominent now is because she's one of the last characters at Marvel who can bring a comedic element to a story. Yep, it's she... 
Her and the JLA, I would say. Yeah. GLA. The sorry. GLA. Yeah, and GLA. I guess, you know, Deadpool is more situational comedy because of the whole metafictional thing, right? Well, That's more of a case of like... Well, if you've looked at the Marvel announcement, they're actually bringing back slapstick of all characters. I don't know what that is and I don't care. But yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I have to imagine that... It, as the name implies. Sure. But, you know, I, I have this theory that like the things that become popular aren't just popular because they're good. They're popular because they stand out against other books that are being published at the same time. We said this about Miss Marvel at the time, right? That there were no other teenage heroes at the time that Kamala Khan had turned up who were actually having a good time. If there were teenage heroes, they were probably getting parts of their bodies cut off or being brainwashed or, I mean, correct me if I'm mistaken, but Ms. Marvel was published more or less around the same time as Avengers Arena, which was a meat Uh, grinder for teenagers. It was published around the same time as Ghost Riders. Racer? Racer? Ghost... The Robbie Rodriguez. Robbie Reyes, you mean? Reyes, sorry. Uh, Ghost Rider. Yeah, but like... He had more in common with her than he did with, uh, mm-hmm. what's it called? With, like, the books in which the entire purpose is to give teenagers angst. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the fix is going to stand out, not just because Spencer does a good job, although he, please, like, please, for the next arc, maybe tone it down a little. But, um. But Steve Leiber, stay just as you yes. are, man. You're perfect. Don't change. I lo- we love you, Steve Leiber. Do not change. Stay the way you are. But, you know, in an environment where that is not the dominant paradigm for stories, it's going to stand out more. That's just how it is. Again, it's very Shane Blackish, and there was this Shane Black film that came out like two months ago. The Good Guys, Nice Guys. Oh, uh, the the one with uh, Ryan Reynolds yeah. and yeah, 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 Nice Guys. And in many ways, it was a very generic movie. But when when I thought about it, it was a generic movie. That nobody else did for the last 20 years. Exactly. Because nobody, nobody just does, you know, buddies, you know, odd ends, buddies going around and solving, solving crimes. Yeah. It, if it came out in 1990, in 1989, I would say, oh, it's overused and stretched and generic, but because it's 2016, suddenly it's, you know, being old is new and original yeah. because nobody else does that. And this goes back again. Like, look at how all of the things, everything is connected, Tom. Everything is connected. This goes back to the whole Ghostbusters thing, right? The On the surface of it, you're saying, let's do this thing. Uh, fine. It, it, it doesn't seem like such a big deal until you realize no one else is doing it. And that in itself, like that doesn't, the uniqueness of it doesn't necessarily make it automatically good or bad. Like it's not a something that affects the actual quality of the writing and the actual quality of, you know, if it's a comic, the art, if it's a film, the direction. It doesn't change these things. But it does add a certain component to how you perceive these works when you realize, you know, Rat Queens came out at a time in which the only other dominant woman-led fantasy stories in comics were what? Red Sonia? And yeah. not even and Gail Simone's Red not, Sonia. Not even the good Red yeah. Sonia. Not even Gail Simone's Red Sonia. It was the Red Sonia. Kate Lesser's Red Sonia, right? Probably. Yeah. You know, so like, that was the level that they were dealing with. It helped that Rat Queens was good initially, but I'm saying like, part of it is like, wow, that's... We didn't know we needed it yeah, until exactly. we got it, right? And now, you know, now we'd like more of that, which is why we're getting like Bounty and we're getting that other book about the... Um, the dark 
women. Uh, uh, Ted Knife is a uh, new project. I, oh, I forget the name. Knight's Dominion. Oh, plus uh, you know Kim and Kim, Kim. JC yeah. Jackson Agency. You know, and now we have like all of a sudden these alternatives that are interesting in their own right, still in the minority in terms of like the overall production of what's coming out these days. But at least you have alternatives, and when you have alternatives, you can be like, okay, if it's mediocre, I don't care. Yeah. Right? I can move on to the next good thing. So that was the fix. Yes, it was. And this was... Hmm? Are you sticking around for the whole series? I'm sticking around for the next arc. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to stick around for the whole series. I'm not going to make a promise based on the first four issues. But I am going to be back for issue five and six. Okay, that's fair. And this was it. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Until next time. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.